Well, because of this in Reformation Day, my tradition has been to highlight some aspect uh, of church history, particularly around the time of the Reformation. And as we do that and look at the history, look at the people that God used, also drawing out the doctrines, drawing out the great truths that were recovered so that we might have our own hearts stirred by the truths that we likewise confess. And so this uh, message is a part sermon, part biography, but I trust you'll be encouraged and stirred in your own faith as we look at one servant of Christ this morning. And so I'd like to begin with a prayer written by the pastor and theologian that we will be looking at today. And so bow with me in a word of prayer. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, last year at this time, we looked at the reformer Martin Luther. If anyone has heard of the Reformation, they most likely have heard of Martin Luther, or if nothing else, they've heard of the denomination named after him, the Lutheran Church. The man we're looking at today is less well-known. And yet, Huldrych Zwingli was born about the same time as Luther and began discovering Reformation truths about the same time as Martin Luther and even independent of Luther. Luther ministered in Germany, Zwingli in what is known today as Switzerland. It was, wasn't officially Switzerland at the time, but we can refer to it as Switzerland And even though the Swiss Reformation is more commonly known under uh, another Swiss man by the name of John Calvin, Calvin's ministry was in a different part of the Swiss Confederacy and also after Zwingli's lifetime. And so it was really Zwingli that God used to spark the Reformation in uh, and among the Swiss people of the 16th century. And yet he's not well known. But Zwingli's obscurity should not, however, be confused as a statement of his lack of contribution to the Christian church. And so I want to show you today that we have much to gain by looking at the life and theology of this man. And so we're going to walk through Zwingli's life, and as we do, I'm going to pull out for us five noteworthy qualities of this Swiss reformer. Zwingli's story begins in the Swiss Alps. No more beautiful place to begin in under the towering peaks, snow-capped peaks of the Swiss Alps in a village known as Wild, Wild Haas. He was born seven weeks after Martin Luther on New Year's Day in 1484 to Ulrich and Margaret Zwingli. He was the third child of eight. His father was a well-respected local magistrate, and he, uh, Zwingli enjoyed his early years in this high mountain town and really developed a love for his country there. When he was five, he was sent to the town of Wesson to be educated by his uncle. And when he was 10, he was sent to Basel to further his education and then transferred two years later to a school in Bern. And after receiving his primary education and even flirting with becoming a Dominican monk, 
his family sent him to the University of Vienna, where he graduated in 1504 with a Bachelor of Arts degree and then a Master's degree in 1506. There in 1506, he was quickly ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church. He, uh, there was a position available, and so he was quickly ordained. He went to back to his hometown of Wildhaus to perform his first Mass, and then he became the parish priest in Glarus. He ministered in this Alpine town, which was 43 miles southwest of Zurich, for 10 years. And as he settled into local church ministry, he became more and more interested in the work of Erasmus. Erasmus, a name that you may have heard of. He was the most renowned humanist scholar of the day. And Zwingli himself, in his own studies, uh, was studied as a humanist, which simply meant they went back to the original text of the classic authors of ancient Rome and Greece. Erasmus was... Again, most well-known of the time, and Zwingli even corresponded with Erasmus and even went and visited him and had a face-to-face meeting with him, which is pretty remarkable that this great scholar who was, who was uh, renowned around Europe would commit time to write with this parish priest, but I believe it speaks to the genius of Zwingli and that Erasmus even recognized that. As a result of his interest in ancient sources when Erasmus published the first critical copy of the Greek New Testament, Zwingli began teaching himself Greek so he could read it. Latin was the the scholarly language of the day, and so he had to teach himself Greek in order to be able to read the Greek New Testament because it wasn't a common thing of the time for scholars to go back to the original languages. He claimed from teaching himself Greek, that he had memorized the whole Greek New Testament and had even hand-wrote all of Paul's letters in Greek. In 1516, he took the role of chaplain and people's priest in another Swiss town known as Einsiedeln. He ministered there from 1516 to 1518, and during this time, he grew in his competence in Greek. He continued to study the Greek New Testament and became a real scholar and a scholar even of the early church fathers who also wrote in Greek. Now, Einsiedeln was home to a shrine, a shrine in the Catholic Church of the Virgin Mary. And so people would flock from all over to come visit this shrine and pay homage to this relic. The advantage of that for Zwingli is that as people flocked to this area, they attended church there and heard Zwingli preach. And so his renown as a preacher spread throughout the the country. And so therefore, when the position of people's priest um, up in Zurich at the Grossmünster Church in 1518 became available, Zwingli's name was put forward and was readily accepted. He arrived in Zurich on December 27th, 1518, and he began his ministry on his 35th birthday, New Year's Day, 1519. Now Zurich was an influential city in the area, both politically and spiritually. And so Zwingli's role as the priest of the largest church in that town positioned his ministry to have reverberating effects effects throughout the surrounding region, and God would use that. And so it was here in Zurich that Zwingli's recovery of the gospel and work as a reformer really began. Everything that had kind of led up in the early years of ministry was preparatory, and things were beginning to change, but it didn't really cement into his life and ministry until he got to Zurich. In fact, from day one, 
He resolved to do things differently. And this introduces us to the first noteworthy quality of Zwingli. The first noteworthy quality I want us to note today is that he was devoted to the word of God. Huldrych Zwingli was devoted to the word of God. In fact, his preaching ministry was unlike any of what any of the Swiss had ever heard. They were used to the medieval lectionary in which the priests would, in Latin, simply read a passage of Scripture that nobody understood because they didn't speak Latin. In fact, many of the priests themselves didn't know Latin enough. They knew enough to to read it off the page, but they didn't even understand what they were, were reading. And then they would read ancient commentaries or ancient theologians in Latin. And so the people would sit through a service done primarily in a language they didn't understand. Zwingli resolved to do things differently in his ministry. Listen to what he told the local council who was looking to hire him. He says, The life of Christ has been too long hidden from the people. I shall preach upon the whole gospel of St. Matthew, chapter after chapter, according to the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, without human commentaries, drawn solely from the fountains of Scripture, sounding its depths, comparing one passage with another, and seeking for understanding by constant and earnest prayer. It is to God's glory and to the praise of His only Son, to the real salvation of souls, and to their edification in the true faith that I shall consecrate my ministry. This was a significant and shocking development. That Zwingli would step into the pulpit and say, I'm going to throw out the lectionary that's been in place for hundreds of years. And instead, I'm just going to open to the New Testament and go to chapter 1, and I'm going to preach chapter 1. And when I'm done with chapter 1, I'm going to go to chapter 2, and I'm just going to march my way through this book of the Bible as the Holy Spirit inspired it. We can take that for granted as that we move through the Bible, we preach through the Bible that way, but this was new and revolutionary. Zwingli believed the people of God and needed the Word of God because they needed Christ for their salvation and they weren't going to hear Christ if they didn't hear the exact words of God as were written in inspired Scripture. And so his first day on the job, he preached his first sermon. The people were eager to hear this great man of learning and new ideas, and so they crowded into the cathedral to hear him. And he stood before them on that first day and he said this, It is to Christ that I desire to lead you. To Christ, the true source of salvation. His divine word is the only food that I wish to set before your hearts and souls. He didn't just want his congregation to hear the Bible explained. He wanted them to hear the voice of Christ. And he believed that it was in the word of God that one heard the voice of God. It's only by hearing the truth that people are saved. And I I love this connection that Zwingli makes between the uh, Christ and the word. And I believe there's a takeaway here for us as well. One's, and it's this, that one's view of the Bible is directly related to one's view of Christ. One's view of the Bible is directly related to one's view of Christ. If you have a low view of the Bible, then you have a low view of Christ. You cannot love Christ and not love his word. They're connected. And Zwingli understood that. Zwingli in, the, in Zwingli's life and ministry, that all the Reformation change that he brought about, it was this habit, it was this position of preaching the Scriptures that brought about the most change. His 
return to the scriptures was the greatest force for reform in Zurich and beyond. He knew that if he broke the dam open, allowed the word of God to to flood over his people, it would change them. In fact, he warned those who opposed his message with this. He said, don't put yourself at odds with the word of God, for truly it will persist as surely as the Rhine River follows its course. One can perhaps dam it up for a while, but it is impossible to stop it. He knew the word of God was living and active and powerful, and he wanted to unleash it upon his people. And so Zwingli didn't begin by looking to persuade local magistrates and looking to enact laws that would bring about change of the Reformation. He simply stepped into the pulpit and proclaimed the word of God week after week after week, knowing that slowly the word of God would change people internally and therefore then there would be external change. There would be lasting change. If there was just laws changed that he forced upon the people, the hearts wouldn't be transformed. But he knew if he transformed the people that society would follow and be transformed. Today, as I said, we preach expositionally through the Bible. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we stand on the shoulders of men like Zwingli who believe in the necessity, the exposition of God's word. Like in Zwingli's day, though, this is not the conviction of all churches. We must continue to stand upon this belief in the sufficiency of God's word that it is this what we need to hear. This is this that we must be grounded in because it's in the word of God that we hear the voice of God. May God give us grace to continue in this conviction in this dark day. So the first noteworthy quality we see about Zwingli is his devotion to the word of God. But secondly, the second noteworthy thing is that he was humbled through illness. He was humbled through illness. Within the first year of his ministry in Zurich, the plague struck the town. It struck in August of 1519. Remember, he started New Year's Day 1519. This struck in August and lasted until February 1520. When people began falling ill in August, Zwingli was away. He was actually on a, on a little pastoral retreat at a, at a mineral spring 60 miles away. But what did he do when he heard about people falling ill and dying? He rushed back to Zurich to pastor his people during this time. And the plague had devastating effects upon the residents of Zurich. It was recorded that somewhere between a quarter and a half of the people of the city died. One out of four, two or more, died in this short time period. In fact, so many people were dying so quickly that graves could not be dug fast enough so that bodies were stacked in the streets like cords of wood. Zwingli's own brother passed away from the disease and he was, and it brought great grief to his heart, his brother that he loved so much. But after only ministering to the sick and dying for a month, in September of 1519, Zwingli himself contracted the disease and fell quite ill. This illness prompted a great spiritual crisis in his life. He had grappled with the brevity of life before as he had gone out with his countrymen to battle and saw them, saw them slaughtered on the battlefield. But With this, his own flesh was affected, his own body, and it brought a new level of personal and spiritual suffering that truly humbled him. During this illness, he wrote three poems. I don't know how many of us write poetry when we're quite ill. Me having gone through a recent illness, let's just say that I wasn't inspired to write poetry, but um, 
Anyways, he did, and uh, it revealed his personal struggle in the midst of this great illness. And I want us to look at them this morning because they're instructive for us today, because we too are called to go through dark times of sickness. In fact, we know that our world has been faced with this reality of illness and sickness for the last 18 months in a way that we hadn't been in recent memory. Now, thankfully, COVID is not as deadly as the plague was in medieval Europe, but it still threatens suffering and pain and possibly death. It's helpful for us to read of Christians who have gone before us, who have suffered and endured like similar illnesses. In this case, there is something to be gained from Zwingli's faith as he laid at death's door. And so the first poem that he wrote was entitled, At the Beginning of the Illness. And a selection of it reads this. Help, Lord God, help in this trouble. I think death is at the door. Stand before me, Christ, for thou hast overcome him. To thee I cry, if it is thy will, take out the dart which wounds me, nor lets me have an hour's rest or repose. Wilt thou, however, that death take me in the midst of my days, so let it be. Do what thou wilt. You see his submission to God's will? His crying out, asking for God to help, to take this dart out of him. But he ultimately says, God, it's up to your will. Whatever you do with me, you are sovereign and you are good. And I submit to that. Well, a second poem, entitled In the Midst of His Illness, continues his anguish. A selection of it reads this. Console me, Lord God, console me. The illness increases. Pain and fear seize my soul and body. Come to me then with thy grace, O my only consolation. You see his anguish, his struggle with pain, with fear. And then his final poem, during his convalescence, it's entitled During Convalescence, as he reflects on the healing that's happened and as he thinks about the days ahead, now that he's gaining strength and getting better, how is he going to live? A selection of it reads this. Sound, Lord God, sound. I think I am already coming back. That is back from death. Yes, if it please thee, that no spark of sin rule me longer on earth, then my lips must thy praise and teaching to speak more than ever before. Since I came so near, so near to death that is, so will I still the spite and boasting of this world. Bear joyfully for the sake of the reward. Be thy help, without which nothing can be perfect. He recognizes that because he's been healed, because he's coming back from the brink of death, that he must declare and speak God's praises and speak them more with greater fervor and vigor than he did before. And so, as he goes forward, he recognizes he may still bear the, the spite and boasting of the world, but he will bear it joy, joyfully because he stands with Christ. His biographers note that this brush with death caused Zwingli to minister with greater seriousness, and it accelerated his growth in understanding the biblical gospel. And this is really what illness should do for all of us. As we come to the ends of our own strength and we recognize our frailty 
and the brevity of life and the reality that we are not in control. That we lay on our backs and we're forced to look up to the Lord and recognize that he is sovereign, that he is in control. And so we, as we lay there, we are humbled under his mighty hand and we confess our frailty, we confess our dependence upon him and we submit ourselves to his will for our lives. And as we do that, we aren't guaranteed that he will heal us like he healed Zwingli. But we are promised that he will be with us no matter the outcome. And that whatever he does for us, it will be good because he is good. And so I believe the story of Zwingli's illness teaches us that we can trust God even on our sick beds. That we can cry out to him and know that he hears us. And we see a model of a servant of Christ doing that. Well, the third quality I want to draw our attention to this morning in the life of Zwingli is that he stood for truth in the face of opposition. He stood for truth in the face of opposition. And you would kind of expect this, right? In the, the fact that we're talking about a reformer, we're talking about somebody who radically went against the norms of the day, uh, you've got to be able to stand for your convictions in light of where public opinion already has been flowing for hundreds of years. And that's the case of Zwingli. In one such case, he became convinced that the Bible did not teach priestly celibacy. And so in 1522, he secretly married. Married a woman named Anna Reinhardt. And it wasn't until two years later that he felt comfortable enough with the advance of the reforms in the city that he publicly announced his marriage. And even though he kind of was secret and then kind of came out with it public later, to even come out publicly that he had married was a clear act of defiance against the rules of the Catholic Church. And the authorities tried to take action against Zwingli and his other, uh, his other fellow ministers who likewise took wives. And so it began this challenge between the Catholic authorities there in the area and Zwingli and his, and his fellow ministers as they were breaking with tradition. Well, this break with tradition uh, only continued in the early months of 1522 when some men held a sausage party. Now, it's not often that a sausage party makes headlines, much less gets documented in the pages of church history. But this one did. It took place at the home of Christopher Froschauer, the local printer, and what made this significant was that this was during the season of Lent, when meat was forbidden to be eaten. And so Zwingli attended this sausage party. Apparently, the sausage was served, but he passed and did not partake in any, but watched as others did, approvingly. And uh, there were other, two other priests that were there, and they also partook of this sausage forbidden meat. In fact, this event became known, is known in church history as the affair of the sausages. The affair of the sausages. And it sparked a controversy in Zurich that caused uh, the Reformation to progress in advance. In fact, this is the only instance I know in, in history where people were jailed because they ate sausages. But all of those men who were around the table 
were jailed because of their rebellious action. Zwingli came to their defense, though, and preached a sermon the next Sunday entitled, Of the Choice and Freedom Regarding Foods. And after running through a number of New Testament texts, Zwingli concluded this. He said, these announcements seem to be enough to me to prove that it is proper for a Christian to eat all foods. He argued that the Lenten fast stemmed from human tradition and not from biblical mandate. And so he called, and in fact, he called such traditions spots on the face of Christ. They were unseemly things and of the foulness of human commands, end quote. Instead, Christ will, quote, become again dear to us if we properly feel the sweetness of his yoke and the lightness of his burden. He understood as pastor and exegete of scripture that, that the commands that we need to be under as the people of God need to be only those commands that are found in the scriptures and that extra burdens, extra commands that are placed upon us are a burden too heavy to bear. And so he says, if we would again recognize what Christ places us under, you would recognize the sweetness of his yoke and the lightness of his burden versus the heavy burden that the Catholic church had placed upon people. Well, he continued to preach through the Bible, and things began to change, and the Catholic authorities began to challenge Zwingli more strongly. In fact, rumors began to spread about Zwingli. He was accused of being a spy for the king of France. He's accused, obviously, of being a heretic and even of being the Antichrist. And so the local bishop wrote to the city council in Zurich to keep Zwingli in line with Catholic teaching. They said, listen, your preacher there in, in the city of Zurich is out of line, and, and you guys need to do something about this. And so in response to the infractions that had already been seen and the pressure from the Catholic Church, the council said, well, let's evaluate this. Let's evaluate the claims of the Catholic Church, and let's evaluate the claims of Zwingli, and, and let's decide. And so in order... He, they, the, the council ordered that there be a disputation, a disputation where both sides would present their case. This would be Zwingli against the Catholic Church. In preparation for this disputation, Zwingli produced 67 articles. It's called his 67 articles or, or arguments. And these laid out some of his core beliefs and thus from these, we get great insight into what he taught, into what he believed. Now, while Luther's 95 theses, which were produced five years earlier, focused primarily on the Catholic Church's uh, abuse of the practice of indulgences, Zwingli's 67 articles were actually more well-rounded and complete and as one theologian or church, history, church historian has said, was the first Reformed confession of faith ever produced. And so it's in these 67 articles that we get a glimpse at the truths Zwingli taught in his ministry. And unsurprisingly, they were centered on Christ. As we've already seen quotes from Zwingli, we've seen how much his heart was inflamed with a passion for Jesus and that came through in his 67 articles as well. And so I want to draw our attention to some themes that come up in these 67 articles, just so you get a flavor for what was the truth that Zwingli believed. What was it that he preached? What was it that he stood for in the face of opposition? The first truth I want to draw your attention to is that Christ is the gospel. He believed that in the center of the gospel was Jesus Christ. 
The first three articles of the 67 articles are clear that he was fighting not on the fringes of Christianity, not on secondary issues, but for the core of the gospel. He's fighting for the glory of Jesus and for the salvation of souls. Article number one reads this. Everyone who says that the gospel is nothing without the sanction of the church errs and blasphemes. Because some would say that they had to, the gospel is only found within the Catholic church. Article number two, he writes, the summary of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus, our Lord Christ, true son of God, has made known to us the will of his heavenly father and has redeemed us from death and reconciled us with God by his guiltlessness. A clear summary of the gospel centered on the person and work of Jesus. And so, article three, he says, therefore, Christ is the only way to salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. Jesus alone is where salvation is found. The second truth that comes out in these articles is that Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Some of these truths you're going to say, Yeah, that's the basic truth. That's the gospel. That's the Christian message. And we say, yes, these were truths, though, that had to be recovered during this time. We know these from the clear reading of Scripture, but the people of that time didn't know these truths. It was enshrouded in so many other false doctrines that they had to be recovered, and we're thankful that they were. This truth that Christ was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. You see, in order for Jesus to be the only way of salvation, it must be believed that his sacrifice was sufficient for the redemption of sinners. Specifically, it was a sacrifice which Hebrews 10 says was once for all. And so in Article 18, Zwingli wrote this. Christ, who offered himself up once as a sacrifice, is a perpetual and valid payment for the sin of all believers. From this it flows that the Mass is not a sacrifice, but a memorial of the sacrifice and a seal of the redemption which Christ has manifested to us. Zwingli clearly taught that Jesus offered his once-for-all sacrifice for sin, a payment for believers for all of time, which means you and I today stand upon the same truth. Amen? That Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to cover our sins, to pay for your sins. Without that, there is no good news. He, Jesus does not need to be re-sacrificed at every communion service or at every mass as is taught in the Catholic Church. It's a once-for-all sacrifice, and I'll praise for him for that sacrifice. The third truth we see in these articles is that Christ is the only mediator between God and and man. Christ is the only mediator between God and men. You see, in the theology of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages portrayed God as a cold-hearted ruler. And Jesus was seen as somewhat of a doomsday judge who was terrible in his holiness. And so people wanted to keep their distance from the Father and from the Son. And so if Christ couldn't be approached, then how do you get your prayers answered? Who do you go to? Well, people had to find a way, and so they would turn to the one person that Jesus would probably listen to, 
The one person that Jesus would probably calm down in his wrath and turn and listen to would probably be his mom. And so they, the cult of Mary was born. And people prayed to Mary, venerated Mary, because they believed that she could stand between them and God. And therefore, in the theology, she became a mediatrix between the people and God. Of course, it didn't stop with Mary. All different saints were venerated because people believed they prayed to them, they could find help to God. But Zwingli saw this for what it really was. This was a replacing of Christ with Mary and with other saints. This was a dethroning of Christ from his position as the lone mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 state this very clearly. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Only Jesus can stand in that place. And so Zwingli wrote, basically copying from this verse in Article 19, he said, Christ is the sole mediator between us and God. Zwingli, in his teaching, cleared the crowded throne room and restored Christ as the one who brings his own blood before the Father as he intercedes for his people. Church, today, we have one mediator. We have one advocate before the Father, and that is Jesus Christ the righteous. There's no one else that can fit the bill. There's no one else that can stand in that place. Jesus alone is the one that we turn to. And not because the Father is some cold-hearted ruler. He is a warm-hearted Father that embraces us through Christ. But again, it's because of the work of Jesus that we have access to him. The fourth truth that we see in these articles from what Zwingli taught is that Christ is the only high priest. You're kind of seeing a theme. These all center around the sacrifice of Jesus and his role and his work. You see, Catholic theology taught that the local priest could hear confessions of sins and could then offer forgiveness to them, to the people that confessed. But several of Zwingli's articles made it clear that Jesus alone is our high priest and he alone forgives sins. Article 17 says, Christ is the one eternal high priest. From this, we deduce that all those who pretend to be high priests oppose the honor and power of Christ. Indeed, they reject it. They may claim to be on the side of Jesus, may claim to be doing his ministry, but if they seek to take his place in any sort of way, they are actually rejecting the work of Christ. Article 50, he wrote, God alone remits sin through Jesus Christ, his son, our only Lord. The next one, 51 Whoever ascribes this to a creature robs God of his honor and gives it to one who is not God, and this is sheer idolatry. And finally, 52, therefore, confession which is made to a priest or to a neighbor should not be advocated as the remission of sin, but simply as seeking advice. I love that. You're just seeking advice. There is no great spiritual power that a priest or any other human being has over another human being, we go to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Zwingli sought to restore that from the biblical text. And you see his passion for Jesus, right? He cares about the honor and the glory of Christ. And so he denounced priests who took prerogatives to themselves which only belonged to Christ. So you see in these first 
Uh, four truths that I've highlighted all center around Jesus, his character, and his work. A uh, final truth, though, I want to highlight talks about uh, his concern for the lives of his people, about the piety and the holiness of his people. And that is the fifth truth that we see in his, his articles is that Christ hates hypocrisy. Christ hates hypocrisy. You see, in medieval religion, Zwingli knew of, of so many priests that went through the motions. They performed the rituals. In fact, as I said, they didn't, most of them didn't even know Latin. And so when they, when they came to perform mass, they would say words mumbling them out so that the people couldn't even hear clearly the Latin words used. And that's where uh, uh, the, 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 the terms came to be known in common language, hocus pocus, came from Latin, priests speaking Latin they didn't really know, and people just hearing some sort of words that are blessed over the elements, and somehow, poof, they turn into the body and blood of Jesus. And so people use that word for a kind of a magic word to say hocus pocus, and something turns into whatever. It's just, it was a game. It was all externals. And so the people sitting in the pew played along with that game. They followed their leaders in simply going through the external rituals and, and, and didn't have a true heart for Christ. They weren't taught to have a true heart for Christ. They were taught to simply do all the externals and you're good to go. And so Zwingli taught that a Christian should follow Christ wholeheartedly. That true faith, to have faith in Christ, not only had an inward reality, but also matched the external. And several of his articles address this. Article 26, he says this, Nothing is more displeasing to God than hypocrisy. From this we learn that everything that simulates goodness to human eyes is utter hypocrisy and infamy. This applies to vestments, insignia, tonsures, etc., He's saying all these things have been built up in order to look good to other people is hypocrisy and infamy. Article 44, he says, true worshipers call on God in spirit and in truth without any clamoring before people. 45, hypocrites do their works to be seen by people. They receive their reward in this world. And so Article 46, thus it follows that chanting and loud clamor without true devotion, done for money only, either seek human praise or else material gain. And friends, this challenges us to look at our own lives, to realize the sin that hypocrisy truly is, to realize how easy it is to go through the motions, to go through the religious motions of simply going to church, and saying the right sort of things at small group, of posting the right things on social media, of just trying to look Christian. And yet, our hearts can be far from the reality. And this is not a little game to be played, but this is, Christ teaches, uh, takes this seriously. Listen to what Jesus said to the people of his own day in Matthew 15. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is the temptation of every age of the people of God, is to go through with the motions, to say the right things, to do the right things, to look like a good religious follower, and yet for there not to be true devotion to Christ. 
We need to ask ourselves the hard questions. Are we doing these things just because our social circles do these things? Or because we truly want to know Christ, we truly love him, we want to see our lives bring glory and honor to him. And friends, anytime we look inside and we try to evaluate the authenticity of our own hearts, we come up wanting, don't we not? We're not as passionate as we want to be. We're not as strong in conviction as we want to be. We're not as strong in our fight against sin as we want to be. And yet, in light of that, we then turn back to the truths that we just looked at previous, that Christ is our once-for-all sacrifice for sin, that he is our high priest, that he's our mediator between God and men, that he is the gracious Savior who receives sinners such as us. And so I encourage you, look at your own heart and life. Is there hypocrisy that is built up in your life, some place where you say one thing but you do another? That you do one thing on Sunday and on small group or in youth group, but then throughout the week when you're by yourself and you're, and you're with others, you act differently. Friends, call that out for what it is. Confess it as sin and turn to the only one that can provide cleansing and forgiveness for that sin, Jesus Christ. If you're a sinner, you fit the bill for the gospel and therefore can find healing and redemption and Christ can cleanse you and and builds you into a Christian who is faithful through and through. That is the work that he has committed himself to do. Well, these 67 articles that I've only summarized some points from, again, were prepared for a disputation with the Catholic Church. And so on that day of that disputation, in 1523, Zwingli stepped in with his all of his works, ready to go. The Catholic Church didn't really take it seriously. They sent a, a lesser cleric go, to go argue the point, and basically the cleric was, was, was quiet the whole time because Vingley so won the day. It was very one-sided. And so as a result of that disputation, the city council of Zurich sided with Zwingli and therefore cemented the Reformation in the city of Zurich. This was the first time that a city council had decided for their dominion, for their domain, uh, that they were going to go with the doctrines of the Reformation. And they said this. They demanded that preachers in their region, quote, preach nothing but what can be proved by the Holy Gospel and the pure Holy Scriptures. They said the Bible is going to reign over this, this, our city and our area. Now, there were other battles that Zwingli would, rage, uh, would wage, uh, including a second disputation in which a similar thing happened. He would have to argue with the Catholic authorities. At this time, it would be about Catholic mass and the use of images in worship. But by God's sovereign grace, the true gospel and the pure teaching of the Bible continued to gain traction in Zurich and in the sur surrounding Swiss cantons. But I want to finish this morning with the fifth, uh, um, sorry, am I my fifth or my fourth? Fourth, right? Okay. Go with my notes. It says fourth. I don't know why I had fifth in my mind. Um, with the fourth, uh, noteworthy quality of Zwingli. And this is uh, another debate that he had, but this was not a debate that he had with the Catholic Church. This was a debate that he had with other Protestants, particularly with the Lutherans. And so the fourth noteworthy quality of Zwingli is that he desired unity among other Christians. He desired unity among other Christians. 
By the mid-1520s, again, we're, the disputation that I, I was just telling you about with the 67 articles, that was 1523, and uh, Luther's died of worms in which he was before the authorities, and he said, here I stand, uh, I can do no other. Uh, that was 1521. So these, in the 1520s, the, the Reformation is gaining traction and really developing in two fronts, as we've talked about, in Germany and in Switzerland. One was headed by Zwingli, the other by Luther. And both were committed to the scriptures, and God seemed to be blessing their efforts. But as we've talked about, as the Protestants were gaining traction, and, and there was uh, more and more people that were coming to the Protestant cause, and believing the true gospel, and rejecting the Catholic theology, the Catholics began to get nervous that they were losing power and control over their domain. And so there was beginning to see not only spiritual battles, but also political battles that were beginning to rise that would really develop over the next hundred years. And so, rightly so, the Protestants wanted to consolidate their efforts. Remember, the Catholic Church had dominant sway over all of Europe and therefore could summon armies uh, to their cause and had money to pay for those armies. And so the Protestants were few, and they needed to band together. And so a ruler in Germany by the name of Philip of Hesse uh, had converted to Protestantism, and he desired that these two fronts, the Swiss and the German, be joined together and therefore prevent, uh, present a united front. Now, Hesse's aims were uh, primarily political. Again, he wanted to stand up against the political opposition of the Catholics. But he figured there was a great chance that the two scholar statesmen, Luther and Zwingli, could be able to find common ground if they could just get together and talk face to face. And so he invited Luther and Zwingli and their associates to a three-day conference at his castle in Marburg. And so the event here at Marburg became known as the Marburg Colloquy, a place where they would discuss and talk. Now, this meeting would be the first and last time that these two reformers would meet. Now, entering the meeting, they were not strangers to each other. They had read each other's writings, and there was some vociferous debate that had gone on on paper, uh, countering each other's views on, particularly on the Lord's Supper. They shared a lot of common ground, but on the Lord's Supper, there was, divi- uh, there was, there was division. Now, the Lord's Supper, which may not be the top of of dividing things in churches today, was a huge issue in the Reformation era. And the reason for that was because the Catholic Church had so distorted the biblical teaching on it that the Reformers had to regain, had to rediscover what the Bible taught about the Lord's Supper, communion. You see, the Catholic Mass taught a view of the Lord's Supper It was called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, you could think of it as as transforming. They believed that when you took the elements, that they actually transformed into the real body and real blood of Jesus as you partook of the bread and the wine. They transformed. And so all sorts of superstition was built up around that because these were not just bread and wine, not just symbols. These were actually the body and blood of your Savior and Lord. And so you don't let just anybody touch them. And so the priest would touch it and place it into the mouths of the communicants. Because you can't give it to a communicant and they could drop the body of Christ on the ground. 
So this was called transubstantiation. Now Luther's view, he changed from Rome. He backed off of that, but it wasn't all that different. He only took one step removed from Rome's position, and his is called consubstantiation. Kind of, uh, rather than transforming, it means to be with. And so he taught that the body of Christ was still present in, with, and under the elements. It's not, it's not transformed into the actual body and blood, but it's the body of Christ is there in, with, and under. He viewed it as a symbol, but he believed that the symbol still contained the substance of the body of Christ. In fact, his favorite verse was Matthew 26, 26, in the upper room, as Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, and Jesus took the bread, and he said, this is my body. Luther repeated that over and over again. This is my body. What does it mean? But it's got to mean that it's his body. It's literally his body in some way. If you depart from that, you're departing from biblical truth. In fact, at this colloquy, before any discussion even started, he walked up to a, a banner that was on the table, and he took chalk, and he wrote that verse in Latin on there so that in front of the whole, for the whole rest of the conference, his verse would be there before his opponents. This is my body. Now Zwingli, on the other hand, taught a view of the Lord's Supper that had not yet been articulated in church history. We believe the New Testament teaches it, as, I'll, as we'll describe. But in terms of a theologian post-early uh, church, it hadn't been articulated in a theological way. He taught that Christ had ascended to heaven, and therefore his body, which he had the real, Christ has a real physical body, as he was born of the Virgin Mary, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And so the body of Christ was in heaven and therefore could not be in the communion elements in any literal way. And so in his view, the, the elements were the symbol and the substance of Christ's body was in heaven. So there was a great gap between the symbol and the substance. There was a distance between heaven and earth. Zwingli's view is called the memorial view. Because communion was a memorial or a remembering of what Christ did. And this is the view that we and much of the evangelical church holds to today. But again, it hadn't been articulated by a theologian prior to Zwingli. We owe it to him. But this was the point that caused these two great reformers to clash. And so after much heated exchange at Marburg, it was clear that they would not come to a common agreement on the Supper, on the Lord's Supper. And they were both as they were both convinced by Scripture of their view. So then, after much debate, Zwingli then said this. He said, Let us confess our union in all things in which we agree. And as for the rest, let us remember that we are brothers. There will never be peace between the churches if, while we maintain the grand doctrine of salvation by faith, we cannot differ on secondary points. He says, listen, the unity of the church is at stake here. And we need to remember that we are still brothers. And then he added this. He said, there is no one upon earth with whom I more desire to be united than with you, Wittenbergers, those who came from Wittenberg, Germany, Luther and his associates. This is a, this is a significant statement. There's no one on earth whom I desire to be united with than with you, Luther, than with you, Men from Wittenberg. And Zwingli and his associates were nodding their heads, were in agreement, saying, yes, I don't think we can come to agreement, but at least we can find some unity. They, they move towards Luther and the Germans. And Zwingli approaches Luther with his hand outstretched to shake his hand. 
based upon what he just said. But Luther rejected that hand. And he says, you have a different spirit from ours. You have a different spirit from ours. He repeated it several times. Understandably, there's a shock that went through the room. Both Philip of Hesse, who wanted this, the ruler who wanted this agreement to happen, and the Swiss delegation were shocked and heartbroken. The Germans, Luther and his men, consulted one more time. But they again turned to the Swiss delegation and exclaimed this. You do not belong to the communion of the Christian church. We cannot acknowledge you as brethren. Understandably, the Swiss were absolutely heartbroken over this, and they continued to plead with Luther and his associates. Luther continued to hold his ground for some time until finally it came to the end, and best I can figure, it was the work of God's Spirit that finally softened Luther, and they relented and offered a hand of charity to the Swiss. And so what resulted out of this event was that they drafted 15 articles that articulated their agreement. 14 of those showed everything they agreed upon. It was the 15th, the last point, that they noted how they did not agree. And this is what they said. They said, nevertheless, each side of this debate will show Christian love to the other side, insofar as conscience will permit And both sides will diligently pray to Almighty God that through his spirit he might confirm us in the right understanding. Amen. Now, in this event, I believe we learned something about these two men. It's shocking to see the coldness of heart in Luther, that he would deny fellowship, deny the shaking of hand, deny even calling brethren those who had a slightly different doctrinal point than him. In fact, they, they ended this event unified as this document showed, but there continued to be attacks against one another, particularly Luther against Zwingli. And in fact, when, when, when Luther heard of Zwingli's death, he somewhat rejoiced that this heresy was somewhat stamped out. I don't think Luther fully warmed to, to Zwingli and his theology, sadly. But in Zwingli, in the words that were articulated there, we see a man whose heart was open to extend fellowship to even men of slightly different doctrine. He had the bigger picture in view. He recognized that it was the gospel that was at stake. It was was the unity of the church. In fact, I believe it was Zwingli's faithful pleading. The fact that he continued at Luther and the rest of the Swiss delegation continued to say, please, Would you please extend a hand to us? Are you sure you want to make this divisive break? And I think it was the fact that that Swiss delegation, they didn't get angry. Right? They could have have been enraged that these other men think themselves so great that they're the Christians and that, that they don't think we are. They didn't allow their hearts to be overcome with anger. And I believe God used that to win over the stubbornness of Luther. In all of this, I believe there's a lesson for us all in our own day. It's a lesson that Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 9, a passage we actually looked looked at back in July. In Luke 9, 49 and 50, John tells Jesus 
Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The one who is not against you is for you. During the Reformation, those on the side of truth were few, and they faced great opposition, both political and societal. And the same is true today. Those who stand on the word of God and the truth of the word as revealed in the pages of the Bible puts us in a lonely company. And therefore, we must recognize and celebrate those who stand for Christ. Even if they may have different doctrine than us, if the core truths of the gospel are there, if they truly stand for Jesus as articulated in the scriptures, then we must not seek to put them down. We may go our separate ways. Luther and, and Zwingli had their separate ministries, separate churches, and they did things differently. But I believe the spirit of Zwingli is that we can appreciate what God is doing in another place. Why can we do this? Because it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about his glory and about his church. Well, we need to conclude this message by talking about the conclusion of Zwingli's life. His life, unfortunately, came to a sudden end two years after this meeting with Luther. He was only 47. His death came by a Catholic sword on the battlefield as he fought defending his country and standing for his Protestant theology. Now, I would disagree with the aligning of the church and the military, or the church and the state. But that's a different conversation for a different day. I respect his courage and his conviction, though, to stand by the truths that he taught and believe that he even go to battle to fight to believe that truth would stand and stay in his own city and area. He was a man devoted to Christ and he sought to proclaim Christ and his excellency. He sought to stand for the glory of Christ in all things. In fact, I'll close with one final quote from him. He said this, I will bear no other name than that of Christ, whose soldier I am and who alone is my captain. May we all serve Christ, our captain, with such resolve. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the life and the ministry, the theology of Huldrych Zwingli. Truly, we see your hand upon him. We see your work using a flawed man to bring about your grace, to bring about your truth in a time of great darkness. And I pray, Father, that as we examine this life from 500 years ago, that you would please help us to think about our own lives, to think about the battles that we're engaged in in this day, and to recognize that the need to stand for truth and to stand with conviction is as needed today as it was in the 16th century. Father, we want to see Christ's name magnified here at Foot of Bible Church. We want to see Christ magnified in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our land. And so may you be so pleased to use us to remain faithful to shed all forms of hypocrisy 
and seek to, to serve Christ our captain with resolve and with passion. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.